Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 4, Episode 10, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. That's five words, all five words there, PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. I always love having to explain the uh, lengthy title we have for this podcast and how much I have grown to love it (laughs) over the years that we've been producing episodes for this, that really this is the central aspect of our life with Christ, is to pay ridiculous attention to him. Jesus, you can only unlock the depths of his beauty if you slow down and pay better attention to him. When you do, you'll discover what Peter Kreeft called the shocking beauty of Jesus. We love paying ridiculous attention to Jesus around here because, well, we love beauty. So my name is Rick. I'm author of the recently released book, Spiritual Grit, and The Jesus-Centered Life, and I'm the editor of the Jesus-Centered Bible. And today we're going to continue our on-ramp into the Easter season with a series I'm calling Death to Life. It's not as much of a downer as it sounds. Death to Life is really the seasonal rhythm of redemption that Jesus has established in every created thing, including his crowning act of creation, you and me. The Beckinator and I introduced in our first episode in this six-week series Last week, death to life is a seasonal rhythm that's built into literally every aspect of creation, from the created world that we live in to the very cells of our body. They all have this sort of rhythm, almost a musical rhythm, planted in it or in us. It is the foundation for all life is the death to life seasonal journey that we're all on whether or not you know it. So death, in all of its forms, in the end, is our open door into life. That is the musical rhythm that Jesus has planted in us. Death is the open door to life. It doesn't make sense, it's counterintuitive, but it certainly is what the Easter season is about. And so this series is designed to be a companion to you as we journey toward the celebration of Easter in April. Now, because Jesus told us he's not pointing to the way, he's not pointing to the truth, he's not giving examples of life, but he embodies all three of these things. He said, I am the way, I am the life, I am the truth. These three things he embodies. So because he embodies these things, we want to attach ourselves to the one who embodies the deepest hungers that we have. We all long to find our way, to find the truth, and to experience life, and Jesus has those in himself. One thing that we've done around here is we're trying to creatively create some foundational resources that help all of us connect more deeply to him. So if he has these things, the way, the truth, and the life in him, what what are ways that we can connect more deeply to him and experience these things through our connection to him? So... This is especially relevant as we head into the Easter season, because we don't want to just talk about Jesus, we want to experience him. 
We want to be in him as he is in us. So I just want to turn your attention to the Jesus-centered Bible. If you if you don't have one, or if you're thinking of a gift to give to someone at Easter time, I can't think of a better one. The Jesus-centered Bible has eight or ten features that we've uniquely created to accompany and be a companion to the Scripture that will help you focus your attention on Jesus no matter where you are in the Bible. So there are some unique things in this Bible that aren't in, in any other study Bible, so I highly encourage you to get a copy if you don't already have one, or give a copy if you've never given one. You will give them the gift of a magnetic relationship with Jesus through this. And we've also created some companion journals that go along with this. They're designed similar to the way that a Bible is designed, so these companion journals are great to give to somebody who already has the Jesus-centered Bible, and we also have companion devotionals that I've mentioned the last episode. We have uh, four or five companion devotionals that all come from a, a different angle. There's one that comes from the angle of marriage. There's another that comes from the angle of restoration in your life. There's a spiral-bound one that is interactive. All of these companion devotion devotionals are all Jesus-centered and designed to wrap us into up into his orbit. So you can go to group.com to check these out or click on the links that we put on our podcast page at painridiculousattentiontojesus.com. So in the last days, since the days before I'm recording this episode today, we've been trying to ingest really what is a horror of so many lives lost in the latest airline crash. Uh, in this case, it was Ethiopian Airlines. Uh, it was a Boeing 737 MAX 8, which is now grounded because of two horrific accidents in the last four months involving that airplane. And whenever we are exposed to a tragedy like this, what we're really exposed to and almost now numb to is the massive death on a scale that's just simply hard to comprehend. And it reminds us of the existential tension that we live in. When we consider the impact that death has on our life, not as a metaphor, but actual death, well, then how can life be a fruit of that? I've said that every living thing in the world has the seasonal rhythm in it of death to life, and when we experience physical death in the way when we see the news reports on this uh, terrible tragedy that took the lives of 159 people, how can life come out of that? It's an important question because death, as we all know, every human being has the shadow of death hanging over them, and we're not always, you know, conscious of it, but it's always lurking there in the room with us. We make so many decisions in our life that are influenced by our awareness of death, that our life has an end point to it. We make so many choices in life that are influenced by that. We can't get away from it, and I think this is why Jesus confronted this issue of death and what we think about death and how death impacts us frontally. I mean, he went right after it. So we're going to explore a similar news-making event in the time of Jesus that when everyone in Jerusalem was talking about this, it was called the Fall of the Tower of Siloam. And this incident killed 18 people, and it became a huge topic of conversation in Jerusalem. Uh, this happened in Siloam, which is on the outskirts of Jerusalem, and it was, it was the big news thing of the day. And at the time, everyone was talking about the people who died in this experience and what that 
death, what that death on a massive scale meant for them. They were trying to make sense of it, like we do when we hear about death that involves people that are quote-unquote innocents. So let's first hear what Jesus has to say about this great tragedy that all of Jerusalem is now wrestling with. This was really, uh, I mean, to put it in perspective, at the time, in the ancient time of Jerusalem, this was like their 9-11. The number of people who perished in this, in this accident was a large number for the size of Jerusalem at the time. And so this was a huge topic of conversation, and, and therefore it was natural that it came up in conversation. So I'm going to read about this account in Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5 are the little portion there that describes this story, and then we're going to uh, dive into this story. So again, think about this through the filter of you just saw front-page news about the Ethiopian plane crash. This incident is similar to that, and it's paired with another incident that was also making the news at the time. So this is, I think, the only time in the Gospels where Jesus is referencing the news of the day, so to speak. So here we go, Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 1. About this time, Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered some people from Galilee as they were offering sacrifices at the temple. Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other people from Galilee, Jesus asked. Is that why they suffered? Not at all. And you will perish too, unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. And what about the 18 people who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them? Were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? No. And I tell you again that unless you repent, you will perish also. And this is a, this is a story with an edge, isn't it? So first he's referencing this well-known news story that was happening and a tragedy that had gripped the, all of Jerusalem. He's referencing that, and then the, even the more recent event of Pilate putting to death a handful of Galileans who were actually worshiping at the temple at the time they were murdered. So the question comes up, how could God allow people who are actually worshiping him to be murdered in the act of worship? How is this possible? You can understand why it would create doubt and confusion and questioning and dissonance in people, and they, so they brought it up to Jesus because it was something that was happening right then that didn't make sense to people. So first, let's explore a little bit about what we know about this tragic incident of the Tower of Siloam. So we get a little context before we dive deeper into the story. So as I mentioned, Siloam is a neighborhood that's just south of Jerusalem's old city. You might remember from another story in, in the Gospels, the Pool of Siloam. And this is the pool that Jesus had asked the man who was born blind, who he then spit in the dirt and made mud and put over his eyes, smeared over his eyes, he asked the man to then go wash in the Pool of Siloam to restore his sight. And uh, what's significant about that is Siloam was outside of Jerusalem, just south of it, and this man had to find his way through the chaos and crowdedness of a, of a city all the way to the outskirts of town and find his way to the Pool of Siloam. So the Pool of Siloam was well known in, in that region, and it was the village of Siloam was surrounded by a wall. So on one end of it, there was a sheer ridge that sort of 
formed a natural wall, and then they created a man-made wall on the other three sides to sort of enclose this village and give it some safety. And apparently there was a guard tower that was built, a watchtower, really, that was built as part of that wall so that soldiers could see if anyone was approaching the village or if they were about to be invaded or if someone who meant them harm was on their way. So the, the Tower of Siloam was a, most likely a watchtower built into this walled enclosure of the village of Siloam. So the embedded question here is very simple. It's probably the most haunting question of humanity. Why do bad things happen to normal good people? And the assumption we make here when we say this is that extraordinary tragedies we expect to translate to extraordinary guilt. We say these things will make sense if the people who've suffered this tragedy deserve it on some level. And when it's apparent that the people don't deserve it, this creates dissonance in us. How could this happen to normal, good people? So this is the same formula used by Job's friends, by the way, when all of this horrific stuff happens to Job in the Old Testament, and one tragedy after another in his life, his friends come to the only conclusion that seems plausible to them, which is, Job, you're hiding something. God is punishing you for something, and you just haven't been honest about it yet. Whatever it is, out with it. That's essentially the response from Job's friends. They are using this ancient formula that we embrace even today to accuse Job of some hidden sin that God is punishing. It's, by the way, one of the more bizarre things that happened around the 9-11 attacks is that some Christian leaders had the brazenness to suggest that the 9-11 attacks were God's punishment on America for turning our back on him. This kind of belief system in either these epic ways or everyday ways is deeply embedded in us. That's why you'll hear people say something like when they hear of someone who has suffered and died or, or experienced an accident or has been killed by someone who didn't deserve it, they will ask, why did that happen to that person? What why did such a terrible thing happen to such a good person? This goes deep in us. Now, one other little note here. Jesus says some pretty edgy stuff here as he's responding to the dissonance of this tragedy in people when he says, he asks the people, hey, were the, the Galileans that were murdered by Pilate, were they worse than anyone else in Galilee? Were, were they the worst people and that's why they were married? Or that's why they were murdered? And Jesus responds, absolutely not. And then he says this strange thing after that, and you'll perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. And then he mentions the Tower of Siloam falling on the 18 people, and he asks again, are these the worst sinners in Jerusalem? And he says again, nope, they're not. And he repeats himself, I tell you again, unless you repent, you'll perish too. The word perish here, he's not referring to physical death. He's referring to something deeper than that. He's referring to a permanent separation from God. He's, re- he's referring to the relational separation from God that leads to our soul's death. He's referring to something much deeper here, and we'll get back to that in just a little bit. But here Jesus is using the emotional leverage that surrounds death, a high-profile experience of death, to point us to the hope of life. 
So how can that be? Let's let's explore. So this week with the young people that gather in my home on Tuesday nights, we had a uh, we have a group of about 20 that come every Tuesday night. I'd like to walk you through something I did with them this week to kind of set the stage for this because we'll dive back into this story that this response that Jesus gave. But let me give you a little bit of an on-ramp by telling you what I did with the young people in our group. So at the start of the evening, I asked them each to write the name of the best person that they knew on a piece of toilet paper. I I gave them a roll of toilet paper and asked them each to pull off uh, a section of it, and then I asked them to write the name of the best person they knew on that piece of toilet paper. And then after they had done that, I told them, you know, you're not going to show this to anyone, so don't be embarrassed, just be totally honest with this. Then I asked them to list all of the reasons or characteristics of why that person is so good. Um, to just li- list as many things as they could think of that makes that person the best person they know. So then they made this list of characteristics of their good person. Then I when I gave them a couple of minutes to do that, and then we came back together as a group, and I said, okay, let's make one master list of all the characteristics you just wrote down. So I wrote a bunch of these characteristics on our whiteboard. Then we looked at this list of characteristics of a good person, and then we transitioned into talking about this very haunting question that we have in life. Is it true that good people in life are rewarded by going to heaven and bad people are punished by going to hell? You could say the corollary to that is, is it true that it only makes sense when bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people, which is the formula that we've embedded? So we raised this question, and I gave them a little zinger in the midst of this conversation. I said, we know from research and our own experience that in a world where people believe that good people go to heaven or are rewarded at the end of their life or past the end of their life, and bad people are punished past the end of their life, we know that most people, I mean, just the huge, overwhelming majority of people— believe that they themselves are a good person. Even if they've done some rotten things in their life, they still have a fundamental belief that they're a good person. So when we express this belief, we're expressing a belief that, yeah, good people will be rewarded, bad people will be punished, but and there are bad people out there, but I'm not one of them. <laughs> very, very few people have a belief system that says, I'm essentially a bad person, which uh, complicates the whole formula, I think. So I thought one of the things we did uh, this, this last week was I had them watch a short clip from the very first show of the comedy show called The Good Place on TV. Uh, I only recently started watching this show because a couple of friends I really respect told me it was their favorite show, and I'd never paid any attention to it. We don't watch a lot of TV in our home, but they spoke so highly of it and said, boy, Rick, you would get a lot out of this show that I thought, let's give it a shot. And uh, so my wife and I watched like the whole first season on Netflix of The Good Place in about a week, and we got hooked on this show. It's a fascinating show. Basic premise is a woman who's led a really bad life and is a really bad person wakes up one day in a waiting room and is invited into an office, and in the office is a cheery man dressed very nicely, and the office is very bright and welcoming, and he informs her that she's now dead, and that 
the place that she's in is the good place, not the bad place, that she made it to the good place. Uh, well, this starts the tension in the show because she knows she's not a good person. She knows enough about her life to know, how did I make it here? Some mistake must have happened. Somebody must have pulled the wrong lever here because I don't belong here. But she doesn't want to go to the bad place, so she tries to fit in in the good place around all of these people who are, at least on the surface, remarkably good people. And so that's the tension of the show, and there's lots of humongous twists and turns in the storyline of this show. But really, the creator of the show is trying to get at this whole idea of good people and bad people and reward and punishment, and he's trying to upend a lot of our accepted beliefs about this, and he does a brilliant job of it, I have to say, and it's really funny. Well, in the first show, the man that she first meets with is an architect of the neighborhood that she's in. So he's a he's well, not a human being. He's a spiritual being, but he is taken on the form of a human so that he can better relate to the, all of the people who are now in his neighborhood. It's the latest crop of people who've been invited into or allowed into the good place. So they're going to live out the, the rest of eternity in the neighborhood that he's created. So he gathers all of the people in the neighborhood to offer them an explanation of how it is they got here. So I thought we could listen to this little two-minute clip from the show. You're going to be listening to Ted Danson, who plays Michael, who is the architect of the neighborhood, and he's explaining to a couple hundred people who are going to be living there now how it is they got to this place. So he's going to explain the point system that's been created to determine who goes to the good place and who goes to the bad place. So let's listen. Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome to your first day in the afterlife. You were all, simply put, good people. But how do we know that you were good? How are we sure? During your time on Earth, every one of your actions had a positive or a negative value, depending on how much good or bad that action put into the universe. Every sandwich you ate, Every time you bought a magazine, every single thing you did had an effect that rippled out over time and ultimately created some amount of good or bad. You know how some people pull into the breakdown lane when there's traffic and they think to themselves, ah, who cares? No one's watching. We were watching. Surprise. <laughs> anyway, when your time on Earth has ended, we calculate the total value of your life using our perfectly accurate measuring system. Only the people with the very highest scores, the true cream of the crop, get to come here to the good place. What happens to everyone else, you ask? Don't worry about it. The point is, you are here because you lived one of the very best lives that could be lived. And you won't be alone. Your true soulmate is here too. That's right, soulmates are real. One of the other people in your neighborhood is your actual soulmate, and you will spend eternity together. So welcome to eternal happiness. Welcome to the good place. Sponsored by otters holding hands while they sleep. You know the way you feel when you see a picture of two otters holding hands? That's how you're going to feel every day. All right, there's an explanation of the algorithm of the good place. It's a, it's really an hilarious and also 
sort of wincing little explanation there. What would it feel like to have everything you've ever done be assigned a point value, even the tiniest of things, and then those all of those point values added up to either give you entry into the good place or condemn you to the bad place, which we're not supposed to worry about what happens there. A little spoiler alert here. If you don't want this spoiler alert, then uh, turn off the volume on the episode for about 30 seconds, because um, it's an important little, little tidbit in one of the twists of this show that it's revealed by the end of the first season that the place that she is in and the place that these three friends that she makes um, in, in the good place, the, the place that they're in isn't actually the good place. It's the bad place. It looks like the good place, but Michael, who uh, uh, sort of portrays himself as the essence of spiritual goodness, is actually a demon. <laughs> and he has created this place to torture them. And the point system that he's described is supposed to torture them, not give them uh, entry into into the good place. So it's a fascinating and amazing twist toward the end of the season. So I think it resonates, too, that the point system, the good people, bad people point system, would be tyrannical if this was actually what was true. Uh, one of the young people the other night said, that would be like having somebody hang over your shoulder all day long during school, grading everything you did, no matter what it was. And the whole group quickly realized, oh my gosh, that would be so horrible to have somebody peering over your shoulder. And my daughter, Emma, gave the example of she just got her driver's license and she had to take her driving test, which is you know one of the most stressful things a teenager can do is take their driving test. And she had a driving instructor staring intently at every tiny little decision she made with what was on the line was whether she was going to get her license or not. She said, it would be like that, only permanent. (laughs) And everybody groaned in the group. So it makes sense that the point system, uh, which is, by the way, what we functionally believe in, what I love about that scene is that, that they actually put on screen in a creative way what we actually functionally believe and it shows almost immediately sort of the ominous underbelly of a system like that. So what's interesting, too, is a couple episodes ago, we explored some of what Paul was trying to say in Philippians chapter 3 about his own list of good qualifications, which was extensive and impressive, and how he looked at all that stuff like rubbish or garbage. And actually, since that episode, I looked into the actual word translated garbage in that passage. If you remember, here's what Paul said. We kind of went more in-depth into this a couple episodes ago, but here's the line in Philippians 3 that Paul says that really where garbage comes into play. He's talking about everything being worthless now. All of that stuff, all of his qualifications, all of his accomplishments, all of the identity that he invested in so deeply, all of the laws he followed perfectly— All of that stuff seems like utter worthless to him when compared, he says, with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He said, all that stuff doesn't mean anything to me anymore in comparison to knowing Jesus, not following the laws and recipes and formulas of Jesus, 
to knowing him. And here's what he says. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, all of that other stuff that identified me as accomplished and a really good person. I've discarded all of it, counting it as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. He wants to know him, he wants to become one with him, and all of the rest of that stuff seems like garbage. Well, I looked up the actual Greek word that was translated garbage there, and I found out something interesting about this. So, actually, the word garbage there was chosen by translators in every translation in one way or another. Some translate it rubbish, but all of them backed off of the actual word that Paul used, which was skubulon. S-K-U-B-A-L-O-N, skubulon. That's the word, actual word that Paul used. Um, the mild definition of skubulon is excrement. The actual definition is the S-word. So Paul used the S-word to describe all of the things that were markers for his own goodness. And he said, I look at all of that like it was the S-word to me now, in comparison to what I've experienced in knowing Jesus. So by the end of our time, where we were exploring in our group this whole idea of the good and bad point system, and how Paul tried to deconstruct that system, and what it was that he experienced or tasted in Jesus that made him say such a thing. What was it that he experienced in Jesus, in the heart of Jesus, that made all this other good stuff about him look like the S-word to him? So that's what we explored, and by the end of the evening, I said, now look at that piece of toilet paper that you wrote your friend's name on and all the characteristics of what a good person they were, what we're going to do now is we're all going to march to our bathroom, and as an act of commitment and even an act of worship, we're going to each throw our piece of toilet paper into the toilet, and we're going to flush it. And then all of a sudden, all the kids are like, oh, now I get why we wrote all this on toilet paper. <laughs> so it was, a, it was a fun moment, and the kids had a lot of fun throwing their list of good characteristics into the toilet in honor of Paul. So this idea that the foundations of our belief systems, we have this point system embedded in us, it doesn't take much to really surface it as ridiculous, even silly, when we actually pay attention to it. And the fact that this point system is later revealed to be created by hell itself, well, we can probably guess why a point system like this would be a tremendous opportunity to torture people, because the deeper you get into it, the harder you're trying to be better than the next person, and the harder you're trying to suppress the aspects of yourself that are real but aren't so good. You actually try to hide those things to make sure that you can game the system, and the points that you're earning you'd be very motivated to earn them for the wrong reasons, wouldn't you? If you're simply trying to earn good points so that you can find your way into heaven, well, how do you know when it's enough? I mean, how, how do you know when you've earned enough? And how do you really know the weighted point system that you're living under? I mean, how do you know when a great good thing outweighs a great bad thing in your whole point system? So all of this, in the end, if this was actually what was happening, would drive us all insane. But this point system that we unconsciously follow in life 
Paul is saying is like the S word <laughs> compared to what? The surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. Not knowing about Jesus, knowing him experientially, knowing the Jesus who cares very little about our metrics. And he proved that by destroying the metrics of the Pharisees, people just like Paul, who had wholly invested themselves in the point system and had their whole identity wrapped up in how good they were as people, how good they were at racking up points. Paul trades all that for the opportunity to know Jesus, who despised the point system and destroyed the point system. So, back to this whole falling Tower of Siloam business. So the big question here is, so why does Jesus respond the way he does to the people? The way he responds is he asks a question of the people who are wondering why these Galileans were murdered and why the people of the Tower of Siloam fell on. He asks them a question, do you think these people were the worst people there? And he answers his own question, absolutely not. That's a ridiculous way to think. The point system that you're expressing right now is silly. So no, that's not true. But then he has many choices to follow that up with. This is how he chooses to follow it. He says, you will perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. Why does Jesus respond with what seems like kind of a harsh statement? Well, let's explore that a little bit. Repentance here is not just, you know, feeling sorry for the bad things we've done. It's really, repentance is acknowledging that we can't make up for those bad things, and that we desperately need, desperately need, a restoration of relationship with Jesus. Repentance is the open door back into relationship with Jesus. So when he says, if you don't repent, you will perish as well, the perish that he's talking about here is a deeper death. It's the death of the possibility of relationship with him, which the whole purpose of the Trinity, concocting this incredible, strategic, and shrewd plan of the cross, was to restore relationship with us, to give us the invitation to be restored into intimate relationship with him again. So repentance is sort of like, uh, uh, maybe this will make sense uh, for you. Have you ever uh, gotten a fight with someone close to you or your spouse, and you realize that there's this wide gulf separating you, and you wonder, what is the way back into closeness? Because it doesn't seem possible right now. Well, the way back, there's only one bridge that can span that gap, and that's for repentance to happen. It doesn't have to happen with both of you, but at least one of you needs to repent to build a bridge back into relationship. Relationship isn't possible until the break in relationship is resolved through repentance. And that's essentially what Jesus is saying. He's saying that you'll experience the deeper death of being separated from relationship with me unless you repent. You have to build that bridge back, and you can't do that on your own. I'm going to pay the price to give you the building permit <laughs> to build that bridge back. You can't do this on your own, so I'm going to do everything I can on my side of this to prepare the way for you to walk over the bridge of repentance. So he's urging them to repent because he wants to be restored in relationship with them. So here's the second question. 
why does Jesus follow this interaction, and he has with these, these people who are wondering about the death that they've just seen in their own midst, why does he follow this interaction with what's called the parable of the barren fig tree? <clears throat> now, let me read this. Now, here's one of the downsides of the way the Bible has been organized. It's organized in chapters and verses, and this is actually one account, one long story that Luke was telling, and we break it up by little section titles, and in my Jesus Center Bible, the section title here, there's two different sections. The first one that we've already been uh, plunged into is called A Call to Repentance. Then there's a break and a new subheading called The Parable of the Barren Fig Tree. Well, that gives you the impression that these two things are not really connected, but they were connected in the original story. When Jesus finishes saying, were the 18 people who died when the Tower of Siloam fell over the worst sinners in Jerusalem? No. And I'll tell you again, unless you repent, you'll perish too. Immediately, it says, then Jesus told this story. So the story he's about to tell is connected to the interaction he just had. So I want you to think about that as I read this story. So here's the parable he told. A man planted a fig tree in his garden and came again and again to see if there was any fruit on it. But he was always disappointed. Finally, he said to his gardener, I've waited three years and there hasn't been a single fig. Cut it down. It's just taking up space in the garden. Well, the gardener answered, Sir, give it one more chance, just one more chance. Leave it another year and I'll give it special attention and plenty of fertilizer. If we get figs next year, fine. If not, you can cut it down. So this is the story that Jesus tells on the heels of this wondering about the good and the bad people, and what does death mean, and all of this stuff, he decides to tell this story. So in this story, let's say that the gardener in his story is Jesus himself. I'm not going to assign a role to the man who planted the fig tree in his garden. We could say it was God the Father. I'm not ready to assign the role to that person, but let's assign the role of the gardener to Jesus. So a man plants a fig tree, there's no fruit on it. He comes again and again and again, and there's never any fruit on it. The fig tree looks hopeless, and he's always disappointed that the thing, the natural thing the fig tree should produce, which is fruit, is never seeming to come. And he, he basically says to his gardener, what else can we do? We might as well cut it down. It's never going to grow any fruit. There's no real hope for this fig tree. And the gardener intercedes on behalf of the, the fig tree and says, no, wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a second. How about if we give it one more chance? And actually, the one more chance is another whole year. Did you pick up on that? The last chance the fig tree has is an entire more year of a growing season. And what does the gardener promise to do? He promises to give it special attention and plenty of fertilizer. He promises to give it, you know, committed attention. So, he will pursue and nurture and invite, and he'll coax and surround this beloved but fruitless fig tree until it produces fruit. It's hope in the face of the evidence of hopelessness. It's the gardener saying, I know it looks hopeless, but I am a master gardener. I'm going to give this thing my special attention. Why don't you bet on me that I can produce fr get this thing to produce fruit? So, here, Jesus is essentially saying, repentance opens our door into a relationship with the relentless gardener. 
the one who will pursue us and commit to us until his influence and his invitation and his fertilizer (laughs) begins to produce fruit in us. So what Jesus is saying is repentance restores you back into relationship with the relentless gardener. And when that happens, you're not going to perish. The fruit of your relationship with me will be evidence that my life has spilled into you. The the fruit-bearing fig tree will not perish. But in order for that to happen, you're going to have to repent and invite the relentless gardener into your life. So, how do we see and respond to the evidences of death all around us? The first thing that I think that we can pull out of what Jesus is trying to drive home here is that the first thing is we don't assign blame and responsibility. We, we don't act like Job's friends, and we root out these little nuanced, microscopic attitudes we have in ourselves that seem to support the point system. So we don't assign blame and responsibility when bad things happen to good people or, or good things happen to bad people. This is a silly and unexamined formula that we've embraced that categorizes goodness and badness outside of the way Jesus describes what real goodness is. So we don't do that, and the other thing we do is we recognize that there's two kinds of death that Jesus is pointing out here. One is physical, which he it doesn't seem to bother him that much. Physical death is not that big of a deal to Jesus. Uh, over and over again, he sort of doesn't pay it much attention, and it doesn't seem like that much of a barrier to him. Like uh, when Lazarus, his friend, has been dead and buried in his tomb for three days, it doesn't phase Jesus at all when the people say, but Jesus, you can't, you can't bring Lazarus out. He's been dead for three days. The smell will be terrible if you move the stone. You can't do that. And Jesus looks at him like, what are you talking about? I am life itself. I'm not pointing you to life. I am life. I'm not worried about death. Death is a little fly buzzing around us. It's nothing. So he's not impressed by our physical death at all. But there is a deeper form of death that does get his attention, and it's relational death. It's the unrepentant blockade to a restoration of relationship. So let's not put off or diminish or close ourselves off to the relentless gardener by simply refusing to repent, by refusing to take steps back toward him out of our darkness into the light. I know in in my own relationship with my wife, there are times when we've had uh, an argument, disagreement, or hurtful things have happened between us, and I, my, one of my first thoughts is, uh, I'm determined not to be the first one to turn, because really more of the blame resides with her. That's one of my, sometimes one of my knee-jerk responses. The longer I sit with that decision, the more the light shines on my own responsibility, and the more the desire to repent grows in me. So whether or not she makes a move toward me, I move toward her to repent of what I am actually responsible for. Why? because I long and desire for restoration in our relationship. So what I'm saying is that what Jesus is inviting us to do is to not dig our heels in and decide we are not making a move. We will not consider how we have hurt him, how we have broken relationship with him, how we have volitionally done things 
that damage and make impossible a relationship with him, instead of digging our feet in and standing there, we we say, no, I want a restoration of relationship. I will own up to what I've done. I will own up to my responsibility here. We respond to his invitation, and we don't close ourselves off from the relentless gardener in our life. We need a relentless gardener. We're hopeless without him. We don't bear fruit outside of the attentions of Jesus in our life. So if we say, nope, I'm going to shut you out of this. I got this, Jesus. We are shutting ourselves off from the only one who can help produce fruit in our life. And it makes sense that worship, then, is the natural response of a fig tree that's under a death sentence, who somehow, way, attracts the love and commitment of an expert and relentless gardener. If anyone can coax fruit out of us, it's him. Worship comes from the fig tree recognizing, hey, I got no fruit, and that guy just told me that he would rather cut me down. But this gardener has intervened on my behalf to give me a second chance, to give me a hope. And this is not just any gardener. He's really good. And he just said he's going to pay particular attention to me, special attention, and fertilize me like nobody's business until fruit appears. It sounds like this gardener is wholly invested in my fruit-bearing life. Why would we close ourselves off to that? If anyone can do this, the relentless gardener who is Jesus can do it. And when we start to recognize that, worship just naturally bubbles up in us. We start to experience what it feels like to be under the threat of death, to have that looming over us, but sense that the author of life, the one who can bring life out of us, is going to relentlessly come after us until we produce fruit. That produces worship. So in light of the great consequences of death, you know, it's the one thing all human beings have hanging over them, do we walk toward the light behind the door into life, or do we stay in the darkness? In a dark room, sometimes you can make out the outline of a door, just the faint crack of light that frames the door. Will we walk in the darkness toward that door and open it? And that act of walking toward the outline of the door in the darkness and then opening it is our act of repentance. It's volitional. We are moving toward the door and we open it into the light and let the light spill onto us. Repentance means that we invite light into our life. We stop hiding in the darkness and open ourselves to the light. And in the light, we describe what we see. That's the act of repentance, walking through that door. Because walking through that door brings us back into a relationship with the relentless gardener. So here Jesus is framing physical death, which he's not that impressed by, and comparing it to relational death. And out of that comes the invitation. Please, please, my fig tree deserves another chance, deserves a whole more year of relentless gardening so that fruit appears on its branches. And the the metaphor he's using here is a metaphor of relationship so that we become back embedded in our source of life, who is Jesus himself, and we get his life flowing up through us, producing fruit. That is life out of death. It's 
diminishing the impact of one kind of death, but underscoring the seriousness of the other kind of death, and it's the longing of a lover for his beloved, not wanting the fig tree to be cut down, but wanting it to grow up into health, into a fruit producer. Well, gang, thanks for listening today. Remember, you can find out more information, but in further detail, on PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. You just need to find our podcast section there, and you're looking for Season 4, Episode 10. And by the way, I, I think I promised at the last episode I was going to have my daughter, Lucy, on this, this episode, and it didn't work out. She's about to head overseas to Spain for a week with uh, some of her friends. So this is her first trip uh, overseas, and she's very excited, and she just didn't have the bandwidth. But after she returns, I'm going to get her back on here, and um, I'm looking forward to that. And then in the next episode, we'll have the Becky Nader back on with us. So remember, by the way, I mentioned at the beginning to check out our Jesus-centered companions in your journey from death to life, which is really what this season of Easter is all about. That's, uh, again, the Jesus-centered Bible and the companion journals and the companion devotions. You can find all these things at group.com or on the links that we put on our podcast page um, right at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com, which is a podcast from Lifetree, and you can subscribe to it on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll talk again next time.